My name is Andrew Fisher, and I'm here today having a conversation with Professor David Benatar about assisted dying. I'm going to introduce myself first, and I'll let Professor Benatar introduce himself, and then we'll kick off. Um, as I said, my name is Andrew Fisher. Um, I have a master's in philosophy from UCT, as well as a law degree, and um, I practice law in Cape Town, but I also have an interest in important questions at the intersection of practical ethics and law. And uh, the questions and topics around assisted dying are in my area of interest. And I'll let uh, Professor Benatar introduce himself and then we'll kick off. Thanks very much, Andrew. I'm David Benatar and I teach in the philosophy department at the University of Cape Town. I have interest in a number of areas, but most especially in applied ethics. And assisted death is one of the topics I'm interested in. Thanks very much, Professor Benatar. Um, would you like to kick us off just by explaining what you mean by assisted dying? Because um, there are a number of different concepts and terms that we need to distinguish, and um, it'd be great if you could just clarify those for us. Thanks. Yes, you're quite correct. So there are a number of terms that one might use. Euthanasia is one. Uh, euthanasia is when somebody's life is brought to an end for that being's sake. Uh, and it's brought about by somebody else. Uh, assisted suicide is when one takes one's own life and with the assistance of others. I understand assisted death to be an overarching term that would incorporate both of those. So if you're taking your own life with assistance, that's one form of assisted death. Whereas if somebody is taking your life, let's say with your, uh, your request, then that's another form of assisted death. Okay, so by assisted death or dying, uh, you're using that to encompass both assisted suicide and euthanasia. Yeah, so that's where I understand it. I imagine yes. there might be other ways of interpreting it as well. Okay, good. Um, and just to be clear, um, so I, I will uh, use assisted dying in the same way in this conversation, unless um, unless I'm specifically referring to either assisted suicide or euthanasia, then I will, I will do that. Um, uh, Professor Benatar, could you say something about... Um, the distinction between voluntary and non-voluntary euthanasia. Um, yes, that's another important distinction. So if somebody's death is being brought about for their sake, uh, they may be of two kinds. The, the person, the being might be of two kinds. The one is a competent being and the other is a non-competent or incompetent being. Mm. So the most common form of a non-voluntary euthanasia is really in the veterinary context where animals are put to death uh, often but not always for their own sake because they've reached a point in their life where they're suffering unbearably and the only way to avoid that is to terminate their lives. They're not capable of making these decisions for themselves and so somebody else has to make that decision for them. But it is also possible to have non-voluntary euthanasia in a human context with, let's say, a young child who's unable to make those decisions or somebody who has become senile and is unable to make those decisions. Uh, voluntary euthanasia is where you've got a competent being. This is somebody who's mm. able to decide for themselves whether their continued life is in their interests or not. And then they make the decision, they authorize the death. Okay, good. Thanks very much for clearing that up. And I think um, there are a number of different questions or ways into the topic of assisted dying and um, I would like to just briefly outline three distinct questions that we could ask and that we will uh, we will explore in this conversation. Um, the first is whether assisted dying is morally permissible and that's a normative question whether it's morally permissible if 
in any circumstances and if in any circumstances in which circumstances the second question is whether it is in fact legal and that's a very different kind of question it's what's called a descriptive question it's a, um, a question about what is the case and uh, given my legal background uh, i can speak to to that, I can speak to the legal status of assisted dying in South Africa and in some other comparable jurisdictions. But just to be clear that that's a very separate question from the question of whether it's morally permissible. And then the third question is whether it should be legalized in a particular jurisdiction. So, uh, for example, in South Africa, should, should assisted dying be legalized? And that's a normative question as well. So, um, uh, ought it to be legalized, morally speaking? So those are three very separate questions, which it's uh, um, it's good to keep distinct in one's mind. And uh, Professor Bennett, I wonder if you wouldn't um, speak to the relationship between those questions. Right. So a lot of people think that if they are in favor of or against something like euthanasia, then they must take a view both that it is immoral and also that it ought to be illegal. Uh, but I don't think one has to have uh, that compatibility of view. So it could be that, or congruence of view, it could be that you believe that euthanasia is morally permissible in some circumstances, but that it ought not to be legalized, perhaps because there would be various negative effects of, of legalizing it. And we can discuss that in a bit more detail later. Or it's right. possible that you believe there's something morally wrong with euthanasia, and yet you nonetheless think that it ought to be uh, legally permissible, and one possible basis for that is that you uh, recognize that there are competing moral views about this and you might believe it's inappropriate for the state to interfere in the freedom of somebody who thinks it is acceptable, even if you think it is unacceptable. So those are ways in which those two questions come apart. Obviously, the, the intermediate question that you mentioned about whether a practice is legal, that's, I think, less likely to be confused with the other two, although there are people who do make mm. that confusion. Mm. So um, the the case where someone might think that uh, assisted dying is is not morally permissible, but nevertheless ought to be legalized, would that so maybe maybe uh, we can clarify that with an example? Would that would an example of that be perhaps um, or analogous example where we think that some forms of speech are maybe not morally permissible, but we don't want to criminalize them or they ought not to be illegal so for example some forms of offensive speech because we think that the state uh, shouldn't interfere with people's freedom of speech uh, unless it's causing uh, harm to others would that be a, a kind of a clarifying example of that sort of category yeah i think that's an excellent example so when you're giving or per permitting a legal right allowing a legal right to freedom of expression one recognizes that it won't always be used in a morally appropriate way. Sometimes people will say things that they ought not to say, but you don't think that they ought to be criminalized as a result of that. Mm. And I suppose the, the, the other category, so let's, let's think of an example where uh, someone might think that assisted dying is morally permissible, but it ought not to be legalized. Uh, could you maybe give us an example of, of uh, a case that would fall in that category? Uh, you mean a different well, kind of case where something that's not euthanasia? Oh, no, actually, so, so I suppose let's, so I suppose one way of thinking about that would be, so um, 
we think it's morally permissible uh, in certain circumstances um, for some for a doctor or, or appropriately qualified person to assist someone to commit suicide, for example. But we don't think that it would be a good public policy to legalize it for some or other reason or category of reasons. Uh, so the uh, particular um, circumstances or jurisdiction in which we're operating is not conducive to it being legalized in particular circumstances, for example. Yes, yeah, so that's one common argument against the legalization of euthanasia is that if one were to permit this, then it would be abused, one would uh, fall down mm -hmm. a slippery slope and begin to permit more and more forms of killing. And so even if you thought that there were some instances of euthanasia that were morally permissible, the worry is that if you allow it, you will not be able mm -hmm. to stem the, t stem the tide, that all kinds of impermissible actions will then take place. Now, of course, that's an empirical claim and yes. we can evaluate it perhaps later, but that is an argument which is very regularly advanced against uh, euthanasia and the legalization of it. Although I should say that it's most commonly advanced by people who do think that euthanasia is immoral and they're looking for an argument for why it ought also to be illegal. But in principle, it could be advanced by somebody who thinks that it's morally permissible. Okay, okay, I'm with you. So I think um, I think that's the, the distinctions between the questions are, are quite clear now, at least in my mind. So thank, thank you for clarifying those. Thank you. Um, um, can we dive into the first question, which is, um, under what circumstances, if any, assisted dying is morally permissible? And um, yeah, maybe you could uh, take us through some arguments uh, for that position. Right. So here I think the distinction between the voluntary and the non-voluntary is very important. Uh, there are overlaps between these two arguments, but perhaps let's focus for simplicity first on the case of voluntary euthanasia, because in some ways that's clearer. And we may or may not get to the case of non-voluntary euthanasia. So what's going on in voluntary euthanasia, just to remind everybody, is that there is a competent person. And by competence here, we mean somebody who's able to make this particular decision, a decision mm -hmm. about whether continued life is in their interests. And they've reached the conclusion that it's not. And let's say there's somebody who's willing and able to assist them. And uh, the person who's suffering is able to provide a good argument, compelling reason to the potential assister uh, that continued life is uh, no longer in his or her interests. Uh, it seems uh, as though that person ought to be entitled, oh, they are entitled, put it this way, morally to, uh, mm -hmm. to, end, to end their own lives. Now, some people say if you want to advance that argument, you need to postulate a, a right to die. My own view is that you really only need postulate a right to life. Because the thing about a right is that the right holder can waive the right under certain circumstances. So mm. let's imagine that you own some property, uh, let's say a, a watch, uh, you um, have a, a right to that watch, that means you have a right that other people not use it or take it without your permission, but you can grant permission to people to use it, either in the mm. short term or in the long term, and so what you're doing is you are waiving the protection of the right in certain circumstances, or you might alienate the right entirely and give the watch to somebody else. Mm. And uh, similarly, I'd say with a, a, a negative right to life, a right not to be killed, uh, you need to be able to waive that right. Now, 
there are different theories of rights. Uh, some theories of rights say that what rights are doing is they're protecting interests. If you adopt yes. that view, then you have to say that you have the entitlement to waive the right, because otherwise, if continued life is no longer in your interests and you're not allowed to waive the right, then uh, you, the right is now going to no longer serve your interests. If the very point of a right is to protect your interests, here it's going to be mm. thwarting your interests. So mm. uh, inherent in this claim of the right not to be killed is the entitlement to waive it. Uh, if alternatively you go with another view about what the purpose of rights is or the function of rights is, if you say that it's, their function is to protect choices, then again, it has to be the case that you can choose whether or not to live. And mm. if you've reasonably reached the conclusion that it's not in your interest to continue living, then the right to life would also enable you to waive that right with respect to somebody who's willing to help you end your life. Okay, so, so whether you take an interest-based theory of rights or a choice-based theory of rights is your view that you, you have a right, if, if a right to life based on either of those theories is assumed, um, it, uh, moral permissibility to assisted suicide or euthanasia follows from that right to life. I think so. A fair representation. Yeah. I think that's correct. Uh, there's one feature of this that I've glossed over. Uh, so if, you, if you're getting assistance from somebody else in taking your life, then I think there is a, an epistemic hurdle that has to be passed. So you need to be able to demonstrate to the person mm. providing assistance that uh, this is warranted, that continued yes. life is no longer in your interest. So convincing yourself is one thing if you're taking your, your life without any assistance. But if you want to get assistance from somebody else, you're going to have to reach, uh, reach a higher epistemic bar, exceed a higher epistemic bar and, uh, and demonstrate to somebody else uh, that this is appropriate. Right, that makes sense. So there's, um, is it fair to say that there's some sort of, in the case of assisted suicide, there the person who wants to avail themselves of assisted suicide needs to provide some sort of compelling reason to the person who's assisting. So there brings a sort of element of objectivity into it in terms of there has to be some compelling reason. Uh, I, I think so, yes, and I think it would be irresponsible of somebody to assist in a suicide without that sort of evidence. So mm. if somebody just said, help me kill myself, and you mm. rushed in and you helped them kill themselves, so that would be deeply irresponsible. Right. Uh, whereas if you saw that somebody was an extremist, that there was little else that could be done, or perhaps nothing else that could be done to secure their interests, uh, and you're convinced of that, then it becomes a much more reasonable course of action. Right. Um, do, you, do you have a preference between the interest-based theory and the choice-based theory of, of rights? Well, uh, I don't think we need to choose between those. I think because whichever mm. one you choose, it's going to lead, lead to the same conclusion. So mm. perhaps it's best if I don't take a, a stand right. on that now, especially since it doesn't make a difference to the argument. Great. And um, do you think you can support uh, the moral permissibility of assisted dying in certain circumstances without uh, invoking a right to life at all? Is that is that possible? Yes, because I think you can say that uh, independently of a right, if somebody no longer has an all things considered interest in continuing to live, then yes. uh, death may be the least bad option for them. And mm. uh, if they're unable to do that unassisted, then it may be the compassionate thing to do to help them. So I don't think you have to appeal to uh, to a right. 
Okay, so the, so there's a number, at least, yeah, at least uh, two different routes to the conclusion that it's morally permissible in certain circumstances. And maybe we can just take a step back here and say, in your view, Professor Benatar, uh, what is the appropriate scope of morally permissible assisted dying? So, in which circumstances would you would you think that it is morally permissible? Right. So here we get into more controversial terrain. I think the <laughs> clearest cases, then these are not cases that everybody would agree with, because obviously there's some people who are categorically opposed to all euthanasia and assisted death. Uh, but the cases that are going to be least controversial are where somebody has a terminal disease and they're suffering unbearably. So the mm. expected life remaining is very little. The quality of life is very poor. And uh, then I think most people who are not categorically opposed to euthanasia would permit it, uh, would think it's morally permissible in those circumstances. Mm. Uh, more controversial next is where you have a condition that's not terminal, but is unbearable to the person whose life it is. And then I think some people get a little more nervous. I do think that those cases are still uh, instances where assisted death is, is warranted. It's the, it's the fact of its unbearability and the fact that you can't avoid it any way other than death that I mm. would say makes, uh, makes assisted death in those cases reasonable. The, the most controversial cases, I suppose, are when one's dealing not with a physical ailment, but with a, a psychological pain. Mm. If somebody, let's say, is uh, depressed and they're unresponsive to treatment, they, they can't get the psychic relief that they want. They find continued life unbearable, but they're bodily healthily, healthy and uh, they want to die. Uh, those are going to be the most controversial cases. And I think for good reason, they're most controversial. I would not want to categorically rule all of those out, uh, but I would, I would want to demand a very high level of, um, mm. of proof, let's say, that uh, this condition was unresponsive to treatment, that there was no other way to alleviate the person's condition, that it really was unbearable for them. But I don't see any inherent reason why we should uh, treat psychic pain as less serious than, uh, than somatic pain. Yes. I mean, it seems what uh, at root, uh, what, what's kind of at the base of the issue here is um, the interest in uh, alleviating suffering and recognizing that suffering need not be physical suffering only. It could also be mental suffering. Yes, I think it's partly suffering, but one common response that opponents of uh, assisted dying have is that one can always palliate a condition. They're thinking mm. primarily of, of physical conditions, but you can always render somebody barely conscious so that you uh, avoid the actual suffering. But many people who seek assisted death do not find that to be an acceptable outcome. They they don't want to live in that kind of condi that kind of condition, that kind of state. Mm -hmm. So they would they would rather be dead. And uh, so I, I think it's not just suffering. Suffering is the one thing, but the other is being reduced to a level of dependence, of uh, unconsciousness or semi-consciousness that's not acceptable to the person whose yeah. life it is. Yes. So there's there's an interest in avoiding suffering, but also an in some sort of interest in autonomy, or you know being yes. being able to be, be you know living according to one's own lights, 
uh, with uh, full mental faculties and to be able to be with one's loved ones at the time of one's death, etc. That um, going into a conscious sedation state uh, or with some forms of palliation just wouldn't be conducive to. Um, yeah, I think mm. that's right. And um, so what about uh, some people who, uh, there are some people who have the view that um, human life is a gift of God and um, it's not ours to decide uh, when, when to take away life. Um, I suppose one, one sort of term for this family of views is the sanctity of life or views that are based on an idea of sanctity of life. Um, so in my understanding, this, this could have a religious form, but also a non-religious form. But the basic idea is that there's some sort of intrinsic value to human life, which makes um, taking, uh, taking an innocent life or killing an innocent person uh, categorically wrong in all circumstances. Um, what would you say to someone who has uh, such a sort of sanctity of life type view? I think it may be helpful to distinguish two versions of that kind of view. So mm. one view thinks that the mere continuation of life is a good thing, uh, no matter what the condition or the quality of that life. So more, mm. more is always better than, uh, than less. And then there's another view which you also described, which is that uh, irrespective, I think, of whether that's true, it would be wrong for us to take a life, or at least a human life. Uh, so I, in, in response to the first view, I would argue that I don't think most people really believe that. I think they might sometimes say it, but they don't really believe it. I, I find that when I present people with the following choice, I get a fairly unanimous answer. So imagine that you could uh, have two choices. Either you live to 80 and then you have a stroke and you die instantly, or you live until 80, you have a stroke and you're reduced to either an unconscious or a semi-conscious state. You continue to live biologically, let's say for another 10 years, at which time you have another stroke and then you die. Uh, if I ask people which of those they would choose, whether they've got any preference between them, uh, almost everybody I speak to, maybe I'm not speaking to enough people, but almost everybody I speak to say they would prefer the first option where they die instantly because yeah. they just don't find the additional increment of 10 years of semi-conscious or unconscious life to be of any value. Now, of course, people's intuitions would just be completely mistaken about this, but uh, if they are correct, that seems to suggest that the idea that every extra moment of biological life is somehow valuable uh, does not have much uh, going for it. And if you, if you did think that every moment of biological life has, has value, then presumably you'd need to think that also about plants, which uh, merely have vegetative life. Uh, is every additional second of that life valuable? Uh, and then if we turn to the version of the argument where it involves taking the life, look, it's very hard to argue with uh, people's religious beliefs. If that's what they believe, it's hard to uh, convince them otherwise. I suppose one thing one could do is to point to inconsistencies that they, that they might have between an attitude to human life and to, and to real vegetable life. But again, they're going to just appeal to a religious text which speaks about the importance of human life and, and not a vegetable life. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be really hard to convince. But I suppose what I would say is that those are undemonstrable views. You, these are not things that you can demonstrate to other people. 
Uh, I certainly would not want to override somebody who had those views. If that's the decision they're taking for themselves, that's that's the decision they're taking, and I, I wouldn't mm. seek to over, overrule it. But if they are wanting to make an argument to other people about what other people should be doing, they need to recognize that the premises of their argument, or at least one premise of their argument, is not something that could have a reach over those who do not uh, accept the assumptions. Yes. Yes, I'm with you on that. Um, so, and I, I'd like to speak more about this when we get to the question about whether assisted dying should be legalized. Um, mm. Because that's, so there's a feature of that question which is, I suppose, different from the question of whether it's, whether it's morally permissible in certain cases is that when you're talking about whether a particular public policy is justified or ought to be implemented, you are you need to take into account uh, groups of acts, not just individual acts. So Correct. when we're thinking about the question of whether it's morally permissible, we can talk about individual cases in which it is morally permissible. Um, but when we're thinking about whether it's a good public policy, we need to think about, um, you know, so it, notwithstanding that some people might have religious, strongly held religious views um, opposed to the moral permit permissibility or even the legal permissibility of assisted dying, does that mean, or to what extent do we take that into account in a liberal democracy in deciding what what a good public policy is? So I'd like to talk more about that when we get to that question, if you don't mind. Well, um, that sounds good. But perhaps in the meantime, you should uh, tell us a bit about yes. what the legal situation is, both here and elsewhere. Yes, um, happy to do that. So I, I will address the descriptive question of the legal status of assisted dying um, of particular relevance will be um, the legal status in South Africa, but I think it will be useful also to compare it to some other jurisdictions. Um, so in South Africa, the, the current situation is that assisted dying, both assisted suicide, doctor assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia um, are not legalized. They are currently illegal. Um, so there is no there is no statute in South Africa at the moment which legalizes these practices. Um, there was a case in 2015, which was heard in the Pretoria High Court. Um, an applicant in that case was a man by the name of Mr. Stransom Ford. And the High Court in that case granted Mr. Stransom Ford the, the right to be assisted uh, to commit suicide. And in, in his circumstances, he um, was terminally ill with cancer. Uh, and experiencing extreme uh, physical suffering. Um, so the High Court granted him that order, but it's important to realize that that was uh, in very specific circumstances. Um, and what in fact happened was that before the order was granted, uh, Mr. Stranson Ford sadly, sadly passed away. Um, and the, the High Court order was appealed um, to the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Appeal overturned the initial ruling in the Quota Quo, which means that the, the current status um, has not changed in the common law. By common law, I mean the law in South Africa that is developed by uh, court cases that are hand on, handed down by judges um, because of the overturning of that initial High Court order by the Supreme Court of Appeal. But what's interesting about that case is that the um, 
the High Court judge appealed to the Constitution, in particular the right to dignity in Section 10 and the right to bodily integrity, bodily and psychological integrity in Section 12 of our Constitution, uh, in grounding his, his order, um, his conclusion that in, in these particular circumstances, Mr. Stransom Ford was entitled to be assisted to die. And, and I think that that's interesting um, because um, my own legal view is that in principle, and, and I must be clear about this is an in principle view and not an all, all things considered view, um, the legalization of assisted dying in South Africa would be consistent with the principles of our constitution. Um, so I'm not saying that's not a, an all things considered view. I just, it's, a, it's quite a narrow circumscribed view that uh, if it were to be legalized by statute or otherwise, or by the development of the common law in South Africa, I think that that would be consistent with the principles of our constitution. Perhaps um, I can ask you the flip side. Let's imagine it were actively rendered illegal uh, by the legislation and that were challenged. Mm. And would that be inconsistent in principle with the constitution? Yes, my view is that it would. And um, so what's interesting here is a comparison with Canada, which also has a constitution as a Charter of Rights, um, like our Bill of Rights. Um, and in that, uh, in that jurisdiction, um, in the case, so there was a case in 2015 in the Supreme Court of Canada, um, uh, Carter v. Canada, the Supreme Court ruled that the blanket prohibition of assisted suicide was inconsistent with the Section 7 Charter right to life, liberty, and dignity. So I think, and my view is that, you know, using that as a comparison, I think um, that you could make a similar argument in South Africa that a blanket prohibition of assisted suicide would be inconsistent with, amongst other others, uh, rights in the Bill of Rights, the right to dignity and the right to bodily and psychological integrity. And what happened in Canada is that once that ruling was made, um, the court gave the, um, the legislature uh, a certain amount of time to actually pass a statute, a federal statute which uh, legalized assisted suicide, which has since been passed. Uh, so the situation in Canada now is that um, both uh, voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide are legal, again, in certain, uh, certain circumstances. So it's, it's, um, they're very, very clear criteria, um, eligibility criteria for availing yourself of doctor-assisted suicide, um, and I'll speak more to that later. But to answer your question, Professor Bennett, so yes, I think that in principle, um, an, an overbroad uh, a blanket prohibition on assisted dying in South Africa would be an overbroad limitation of certain important rights enshrined in our constitution. Uh, South Africa is, is a constitutional democracy, which means that the constitution is the highest law of the land, and, um, and all other sources of law need to be consistent with it. Right, and can you tell us so, about some other countries, either whether sure. it's legalized or where it's illegal, remains illegal? Yeah, so I think it's helpful also just to get a sense of the, the sort of the spectrum of different possibilities from a, from a public policy point of view. So, so that's the case in South Africa. Um, in the Netherlands, let's go to the Netherlands. So the Netherlands have had uh, both voluntary euthanasia for mentally competent adults uh, and doctor-assisted suicide have been legal there, um, I think since 2002 when they, or at least the statute was passed in 2002. But what, what's interesting there is that um, what the, the model they have there is that doctors are immune from prosecution. 
um, if they assist someone to die or they administer um, a lethal agent on request uh, given consent of a mentally competent adult, they are immune from prosecution in terms of the criminal code, provided that they comply with certain safeguards. Uh, and there's a very clear set of safeguards that have to be complied with. Uh, and what happens is that um, a, a case, uh, uh, either euthanasia or assisted suicide must be requested, um, the eligibility criteria must be met, and then it goes to a regional review committee to assess whether the due care um, uh, obligations or requirements have been met. And if the review committee thinks that a uh, due care requirement has not been met, then the if it's a case of assisted suicide, the uh, or in either case, um, the person who administered, well, the person who assisted um, it can be liable for prosecution. So that's kind of how their model works. It's an immunity from prosecution rather than a, a specific um, illegalization. And, that, and so, so what's interesting about Netherlands is that it's, uh, it's been, that statute has been enforced since 2002. So I think it's one of the, um, the jurisdictions in, in which uh, these practices have been legalized for the longest amount of time. And that's useful because we can get a sense of empirical questions about what happens when you legalize um, assisted dying. Um, and I'll speak a bit more about those later. But uh, so, and then, so uh, Switzerland, uh, Switzerland has uh, legalized assisted suicide, but not legalized euthanasia. Uh, Switzerland is the only country to accept foreign nationals for legal medically assisted suicide. Um, and it's also, in terms of its criminal code, not a crime uh, to assist someone with a suicide. Um, and then I've spoken about Canada, so the situation there has recently become more permissive with the first the Supreme Court case of Carter and then federal piece of federal legislation which came through in June 2016, which allows both voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide in very, um, very clearly defined cases. Um, and importantly, I should also say that um, it's typical it, where assisted dying is legalized in some form that um, there is a right of doctors or other medical practitioners um, a conscious, conscientious objection right. So no one is forced um, to help any person uh, to commit suicide um, or right, to provide so a, the, the... a willing die and a willing assister. Exactly, yes. So I was talking about the United States. So I mean, so there, there are a number of states that have, that have legalized it at, at the state level. There's no federal, uh, cross-cutting federal statute which legalizes at the moment, but Oregon is a good um, example. They've had a, um, a statute in place for a long time now that allows terminally ill patients to avail themselves of doctor-assisted suicide. And, and again, that's where a, a doctor or a medically qualified person is allowed to prescribe um, uh, prescribe uh, lethal dose of medication which is administered by the by the person wanting um, suicide wanting to commit suicide um, yeah in the UK it's not legalized yet despite uh, some attempts to pass a bill by I think Lord Joffe um, through the UK legislature um, so so they, they still have not legalized that um, so yeah, so there is, is quite a range. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, it's it's been legal there for a long time, and it's probably important to note that um, over time, uh, the 
the types of cases um, that have that have well, yeah, the types so the types of cases in which it's permissible it's become more permissive over time. Um, so, for example, um, in the Netherlands, there have been some cases where it has been permissible for people to avail themselves of assisted suicide where they're not uh, suffering from purely physical suffering or terminally ill or are not terminally ill patients. Um, there has been some debate uh, recently about whether people who are just tired of life, uh, who, who are older or above a certain age and just tired of life and, and not suffering from any demonstrable physical uh, physical pain or suffering, um, but feel like their life has been completed, whether or not they should be able to avail themselves, that, that, that has not been um, uh, formally resolved um, as yet. Uh, but I just I make the point just to indicate that uh, the, the law has become more, more permissive over time. Um, and we can talk about what that means. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that, uh, that, th that uh, there's a greater risk of abuse over time. I mean, in one sense, it's obvious that if something becomes available uh, and becomes legalized, people are going to make more use of it, A, eh? uh, and that perhaps over time as, as a, a jurisdiction gets more more used to it uh, being available and legal in certain circumstances, um, the scope of morally permissible circumstances might increase. But that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't know what your views are, are on that. Professor. Right, I actually had a few questions for you about this. So hmm. I think it's also worth just raising the case of non-voluntary euthanasia in the Netherlands. I know that's permitted there. Yes. They've got yes. a protocol for, uh, for infants, for example. Uh, are there any other jurisdictions where non-voluntary euthanasia is uh, legally permissible for humans? For humans? Um, yes. I don't know off the top of my head, so I'd have to get back to you on that. Um, but you're right, in the, in the Netherlands, they, they have what's called a, the Groningen Protocol, mm. which is um, a protocol setting out uh, clear guidelines about when non-voluntary euthanasia may be indicated um, and so a, a sort of a case law or common law has developed in the Netherlands based on that protocol which has allowed um, uh, non-voluntary euthanasia in certain cases but um, as far as I know there isn't another jurisdiction but I stand to be correct on that I'd have to have to get back to you. Thanks I haven't heard about this but I, I just didn't know for sure. Mm. Uh, I think we're verging now towards the final question we were going to look at about whether assisted dying should be legalized. But towards that end, let me just ask you some other questions about the legal situation. So you mentioned that the Netherlands has had legalization for quite some time. My understanding mm. was that in Switzerland it's been legal for even longer. Mm. Is, that, is that correct or not? Oh, you're correct, yeah. So in Switzerland um, it is actually, so there they have in their criminal code a provision that says that where you assist someone else to die with their consent and you do it for selfless reasons then you can be immune from prosecution so there's kind of like an exception in their criminal code which has been in force for i think since the 1940s mm. again i stand to be correct on the exact date but you are correct that it's been it's been uh, uh, you know people have been able to avail themselves of that particular carve-out or provision in the, in the criminal code. But it's different from the Netherlands in the sense that it, they, the Switzerland doesn't have a, a formalized statute specifically uh, covering cases of assisted suicide and euthanasia. 
like like that was introduced in the Netherlands in 2002. But even in the Netherlands, uh, obviously the the process of legal development is interesting because um, there were a couple of test cases where high courts in the Netherlands um, permitted, uh, in certain circumstances, um, assisted suicide. Uh, and then building on those cases, um, there there was a development towards a formal statute authorizing it. And, and so we see a similar thing happening in Canada as well with the Carter case and some other cases. And then it's sort of culminating in a in a, a formal statute, um, which uh, which clearly and carefully regulates the situation. Uh, and, I, and just to point out that that might be one possible path that South Africa might take from a public policy point of view, either through the development of the common law, uh, sort of piecemeal, um, and or uh, eventually in a formal statute that, uh, that comprehensively covers the, the topic. Thanks. Now, uh, one of the arguments that's advanced against uh, the legalization of assisted dying is the slippery slope argument that uh, you're going to commit mm -hmm. more and more things. If you allow if you allow some assisted dying, you're going to allow more and more things, and eventually you'll end up in a, at a point where you ought not to be. That is to say, allowing things that ought not to be allowed. Yes. Uh, and the, the Netherlands is often cited as an example of that, where there was mm -hmm. initial uh, initially permissibility just for a small range of cases, and then it's gradually extended. Uh, I'm always interested that the Netherlands is cited, but not any of these other jurisdictions where it has been legal. Uh, so can you tell me, are there any jurisdictions where it's been legal for quite some time and there's also evidence of a greater permissibility other than the Netherlands? Mm, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, so I, I'm not aware of any um, any evidence of or any conclusive evidence of more permissibility in any jurisdiction where it's been available for a long time. Um, so Oregon has also been available for a long time mm. in the states that's assisted suicide and and they've kept um, and in these states that legalize it they also they, they keep accurate records and they do um, uh, regular surveys. Uh, and as far as I'm aware there's no conclusive evidence that uh, and in Oregon, certainly, I mean, the the circumstances in which you can avail yourself of assisted suicide rem have remained extremely narrow. Uh, so just just uh, so so there you have to be terminally ill. You have to have a actually a prognosis of six months or less left to live. So that's actually a very, very narrow, narrowly circumscri circumscribed cases in which you can avail yourself of it. Um, and, and that hasn't seemed to have changed. Um, over the period that they've had that law in Oregon. Um, again, I, I can't uh, say uh, for sure. Uh, mm. I would I would have to kind of do a comprehensive survey of all the, all the jurisdictions and look at the empirical the empirical surveys. But right, as but far think, as I'm aware, so, no. Yeah. yeah so what I think this shows is that when one makes that sort of claim about the inevitability of a slippery slope, uh, one needs to be cautious because it may be that you will get a shift in some jurisdictions and you won't in others. And there may be all kinds of variables that would explain that that are not apparently, that, that are not obviously apparent. Uh, but to, to constantly sort of point to the Netherlands as though all jurisdictions yes. where legalization takes place would follow that path uh, seems to me to be an oversimplification. It, it might be a cautionary tale for some people, uh, but it, it doesn't mean all jurisdictions would follow that same path. Right, absolutely. I mean, these are multifactorial things. Um, 
And, um, and of course, the other thing with slippery slopes is that uh, you need to show that the cases that are now allowed mm. um, are cases that uh, should not be allowed uh, and that the cases that are now allowed uh, were caused by cases that were previously allowed. Um, so, I mean, in the Netherlands, uh, many people would say, well, these, these, um, the increase in scope of morally permissible assisted suicide is, is actually morally permissible and consistent with our, with our principles and values. And, and this is, uh, you know, we are not at a place that we don't want to be. Um, I think it's, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, please. Uh, so it's not so much that they're not a place where they don't want to be, but they're not at a place where they ought not to be. Because I think yes. the whole point about the slippery slope argument is that you will come to accept things that you ought not to accept. Right, right. Uh, right, right. I mean, that's just a, just, just a slight variant on what you were saying. No, you're correct. That is correct. Yes. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, the thing with slippery slopes is that it really is an empirical matter. And, you know, mm. it's, 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 you, um, it's you need to demonstrate um, with with good evidence uh, that there is going to be an increased risk of um, uh, permitting these things leading to morally impermissible practices. And as far as I know, uh, I mean, there isn't this kind of uh, conclusive good evidence that this is the case. Um, in fact, there is some evidence um, that the people who avail themselves of assisted suicide um, so I suppose uh, just to take a step back here, I suppose what I'm, what I'm also thinking about in the back of my mind is uh, another argument that some people might make against uh, legalizing it is that there's a risk of abuse and that they, we can't put in place adequate safeguards uh, to prevent this risk of abuse. Um, and, and so I suppose one response to that would be, well, again, an empirical matter. So is, is empirically, is it the case that there's going to be uh, abuses that we can't control with uh, adequate safeguards? And there's some evidence to suggest that um, you know, there's this, this worry that uh, the vulnerable will be taken advantage of if we if we legalize this. Uh, and, but there's some evidence in uh, Oregon um, that the people who avail themselves of assisted suicide tend to be um, quite plucky people who are used to getting their way in life and are certainly not a soft touch and vulnerable um, and um, you know, are, are, are basing the decision on uh, the principle of autonomy. And so, uh, yeah, and so I suppose it illustrates the point that if, if, uh, if we worried about risk of abuse, then we need to pay careful attention to the, to the evidence uh, in our particular circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I think you're quite right about that. I'd say a few other things about abuse. So often the, the, the choice is presented as keep it illegal and have no abuse or legalize it and have abuse. And I think mm. that's a false dichotomy because there mm. clearly are instances of abuse, even in jurisdictions where it's illegal. So you've had uh, doctors like that Harold Shipman in the UK <clears throat> who was killing a number of his elderly patients uh, undetected for a long time and then finally uncovered. Uh, that's mm -hmm. in a jurisdiction where it was illegal. So he was <clears throat> murdering people uh, under the guise of, of medical treatment. Uh, people didn't pick up on it because it's not unusual for old people to die. Uh, but you didn't need a, a legal environment permitting euthanasia in order for a figure of that kind to be abusing his position. So that's the, the one thing to realize is that there's a false dichotomy. Uh, mm -hmm. Secondly, I think we should recognize that if one legalizes uh, assisted dying, there will be some people who will abuse that. So the question is, is there going to be more 
than there would be in the alternative uh, scenario. And not only that, but would there be uh, so much more that it would offset the obvious advantages to legalizing? Yes. Because there are all kinds of things that are abused. Cars are abused. Alcohol is abused. Sure. Uh, and when cars are abused, you often get young, healthy people dying as a result of it. <clears throat> so the way to stop deaths from car accidents would be to prohibit all car driving. Mm. You you may then get, of course, deaths from uh, uh, from horse-drawn carts. <laughs> the way to stop those <laughs> yeah. is to stop horse-drawn carts. Uh, yes. But we think there is there is a societal value in having cars and other more forms of of, uh, of transport. And although uh, they will sometimes be abused, the appropriate response to that is to try to curtail and limit the amount of abuse, to minimize it, uh, so that we can at least get the advantage from those. And similarly with assisted dying, allowing people to, or well, not allowing, but forcing people to continue to live when they find their continued life a, a burden uh, is a mm. real cost for a society to uh, to bear. And so sure. maybe that we, we should allow, well, not allow, but tolerate some uh, abuse while trying to minimize it. Right. So, uh, so permit and regulate to minimize the risk of risk of abuse as much as possible and, um, and uh, maximize the benefits that it brings to people who want to avail themselves of it. Yes. Or try to at least balance giving, yes. uh, giving these benefits to people uh, mm. and, uh, and avoiding abuse or as much, avoiding as much abuse as possible. Yeah. Do you think that there are specific concerns around legalizing assisted dying in South Africa, um, given uh, the extent of inequality um, and um, lack of access to quality palliative care? Are those are those particular factors that you know that might mitigate against legalizing it in our particular circumstances? It's a good question because that's a common argument that's advanced by opponents of legalization in South Africa. Uh, I think there are two sorts, at least two versions here. The one is that if you did permit it, then poor and vulnerable people would be uh, uh, would be encouraged to take their lives or have their lives taken. Perhaps it would slip from voluntary into, um, into mm. involuntary rather than non-voluntary uh, euthanasia. Uh, and I am um, I understand that worry, but as you say, the evidence from elsewhere in the world is that it does not tend to be the poorest and the most vulnerable people who elect to uh, to have the assisted dying. It tends to mm -hmm. be better educated people, people uh, with resources. So I'm not that worried. But if one were worried about that, one potential solution is to legalize and to have a sunset clause built into the legislation. So a sunset clause, as you well know, would be a clause that brought about the end of that legislation or the, the efficacy of that legislation uh, at, by a certain date. So it, it's not that you'd create a law and it would remain on the books until it was actively defeated. You'd create the law and it would have an expiry date that need to be actively renewed if uh, you wanted to continue. And so that avoids the presumption in favor of the law or legalizing assisted dying from, um, from prevailing. Uh, and it also allows you to monitor what happens when you legalize to see whether it does lead to the negative consequences that uh, the naysayers are suggesting would result. Mm -hmm. And then the other sort of argument, which I suppose is related to concerns about the poor and vulnerable, is this lack of access to, uh, to quality palliative care. And so that might be another reason. It's not that they would be 
bullied into it, but given the access of palliative care, they uh, might be more desperate and 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 want to see yes. assisted dying. And I suppose what I would say there is that the absence of of palliative care is uh, it's um, a, t a terrible feature of our society, and and not just yes. our society. They vast um, vast portions of the continent where people just don't have access to um, to palliative care. And so I think it's a it's a priority to be providing that. It's a very important use of healthcare resources. But mm. in the absence of that, it might indeed be eminently rational for somebody to say, I, I'd rather die than uh, continue in this condition in the absence of palliative care. So yes. one thing one thing that that euthanasia, the legalization of euthanasia might do is it might actually focus people's attention and uh, improve uh, the availability of, of palliative care. Yes. People are far too complacent about that. Yes, I agree. And I say one thing to add to that is that um, these these are not uh, these are not mutually exclusive goals. I mean, we should both yes. be trying to broaden access to quality palliative care and uh, give people the right to assisted dying if they choose to avail themselves of it. Um, you should give exactly. people the choice. Exactly. Doesn't uh, matter yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, so I'm just conscious of time, Professor Benatar. Um, but uh, unless there's um, any other particular topic which you'd which you'd like to address or um, a particular point you'd like to make, uh, perhaps I should just summarise briefly. I think, well, I think there's one point that we neglected to make earlier that's yes. uh, been an, an underlying assumption in our conversation. Although we differentiated voluntary and non-voluntary euthanasia, and we differentiated the, differentiated the different kinds of questions that we can ask about euthanasia, what we didn't do was draw a distinction between active and passive euthanasia. Yes. Uh, and I should say that our discussion here has been really around uh, uh, active forms of euthanasia and active forms of assisted dying. Yes. Uh, so maybe, maybe worthwhile just briefly mentioning, if you assist somebody in passively bringing about their death, uh, you are allowing them to die without you or uh, they're doing anything. So if, for example, mm. somebody who had a terminal condition and uh, got an opportunistic infection and they elected, let's say, not to uh, take antibiotics so as to hasten the death, that's a passive way of bringing about your death or somebody mm. else's death. We've mm. been speaking there about active means where you actually do something, you administer a drug, for example, or you give somebody a pill that they then ingest. And that's what we've been discussing. That is the more controversial case. The, the passive forms are deemed permissible and they are legal in many more places. Yes, that's correct. And uh, so I suppose uh, this could be a, a topic for another occasion, but there's in, an interesting question about whether anything turns morally on the distinction between yes. actively killing and passively letting die. Because there are some philosophers who think that there isn't really a, it's a distinction without a difference. And if, if we should, if we can permit letting die, then we should also in certain circumstances, similar circumstances, permit actively, uh, actively uh, assisting to die. Um, but that, I suppose right. that's a, yeah. It is um, a topic for another conversation. <laughs> topic for another conversation. Uh, Professor Benissar, um, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, so just, just to briefly um, yeah, summarize that, uh, hopefully it's become clear through our conversation, the three distinct questions, is it morally permissible in any circumstances, um, is assisted suicide uh, and voluntary active euthanasia morally permissible in any circumstances, and if so, which? That's the first question. The second question, 
Uh, is it uh, descriptively legal in South Africa and in other um, comparable jurisdictions which, we, which we've discussed, which is a separate and not a moral normative question? Uh, and the third question, um, whether or not it is morally permissible, uh, ought it to be legalized in South Africa in, in our particular circumstances? But I suppose the same question could, could apply to another jurisdiction considering legalizing these practices where it isn't currently legal. Um, so thank you very much, Professor Benatar. And yeah, thank um, you. It was a very nice conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks.